What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. I'm Ben Bullen. Scott, riddle me this. Why do I look so happy right now? Uh, because this is maybe, I don't know, one of your favorite uh, subjects? A two brute. Uh, uh, this is one of yours. This uh, is a close yes. personal favorite of uh, your very own Scott Benjamin's listener. Uh, the Why are you smiling? I am smiling because you know we get a lot of mail. Yeah. Uh, not as much as Santa Claus, but mm-hmm. we do get quite a bit. And uh, we don't always get a chance to answer it. Yeah. And one of the things that um, you and I decided to do, a, I guess, five episodes ago now? Yeah, I think this is number six. Yeah. One of the things we decided to do is say, you know what? Our listeners are so cool and you guys are as into vehicles as we are. So you probably want to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah, exactly. What do other listeners have mm-hmm. to say about the show or, you know, ideas that they have? Because we, if you've been paying attention over the, uh, the past couple of years, we, we do, uh, we do a lot of listener requests on this show. Yeah, we love them. Yeah, I mean, what, what are, what are we going to do? Basically just examine, uh, our opinions, which we have done. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> yeah. We did have that Packard episode. Yeah, purely guilty <laughs> of that one. That's for sure. Okay. So let's, uh, without further ado, Kick off, uh, don't call it a comeback, nuts and bolts number six. That's right. And let's start off with some listener mail. How about that? Sounds perfect. All right, here we go. Oh, check, check this out. I got one very recently. In fact, I got it today uh, from a listener named Amber in Portland, Oregon. And uh, the title of this one says, I saw the prototype for the Robo Dolphin, I think. What? You know, the, the sea breacher. The sea breacher, which is uh, exactly what it was. She used to live in Redding, Colorado on her way to school in the late 80s. Uh, they went by this house with a dolphin-looking vehicle on a trailer in the front yard. Okay, I don't know. Is, that sounds like our guy. This is the late 1980s in the right town in Redding, California. So um, one day where while she was out for a walk in the neighborhood with her mom, the guy was out on his front porch, so her mom decided to stop and talk to the guy about the vehicle. And um, the guy said that he was looking for sponsorship and, um, you know, you know, what is this thing you have in your, mm. in your front yard? He explained what was going on. And um, she thought it was called the Sea Bounder, but it's really called the Sea Breacher, mm-hmm. uh, if you remember. But uh, maybe at the time it was called the Sea Bounder. Who knows? Yeah, it's still prototype Who stage. knows? Yeah, at that point. So um, – and she's pretty sure that that's what we're talking about on this podcast, this guy. 
Um, so anyways, it, it says that she was excited to think that this guy finally made it, you know, got this idea. Oh yeah. He's ground. living his dream. And, uh, <laughs> she said that, um, uh, at the time her, her teenage brain was thinking, come on, mom, let's just get home. But now she's thinking, you know, what an interesting guy. Maybe we should have talked to him a little bit. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting. This Amber from, uh, Portland, Oregon mentioned. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for writing in, Amber. You want to go? You want me? You to? know what? I got a couple here that I do want to read because yeah. these have to do with. Uh, there's just a couple in a row, and then I'll let you. Yeah, yeah. Hit with a couple, but um, these are about the the break show that we did. Ah, uh, we did get a lot. Of, we got a lot of helpful stuff. Yeah, about we the did. Breaks. We really did, which is good. Um, one here from uh, Justin. Mm-hmm. Justin says you cannot do a podcast telling everyone how easy brake pads are to change without mentioning that you need to pump the brakes up before driving the car again. Good call, Justin. Yeah, yeah, you do have to because uh, the vehicle will not stop. Not a good idea. No, no, you got to seat the. Uh, you got to get them pressed, you mm-hmm. know, into the right position where they would be normally when you're driving the vehicle. Otherwise, they're too far apart. You push the, the pedal down, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Um, scary situation, which um, <laughs> is also mentioned by Paulie here. Uh, actually, Paul. Yes. Um, Paul mentioned um, that he listened to the Changing Brake Pads podcast and said that we did mention. Pumping up the brakes. Uh, so you know it wasn't meant to be a step-by-step guide, but something we should mention. He's a seasoned mechanic, he says, and he's forgotten <laughs> once or twice and caused a panic situation. So um, I can imagine that's, uh, yeah. that's true. But the and reason he, I'm snickering is is I'm not laughing at, at Paul. I'm laughing because he put LOL in the yeah, email. Yeah, that? Some kind of cryptic message? L. And then it's like a capital L, then a capital O, and then a capital L. What is, what is that? Laugh out loud. Oh. All right. Good. Are you serious? Good for you, Paul. What? You know what LOL means. Oh, I, I don't know. I'm not a uh, not so much in the internets like you. And <laughs> tech. Yeah, yeah. he meant laugh out loud. That's oh, okay. why. Gotcha, I wasn't gotcha, laughing gotcha, at gotcha, him. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, next one, a little bit of break advice from uh, from Ray. Ray is from Connecticut. Yeah. And uh, Connecticut, he says that uh, I went to a technical high school here in Connecticut uh, for automotive naturally, so he loves the podcast. Uh, when you guys were talking about brake pads, one of you brought up how confusing drum brakes were. That was me. And it reminded me of a great tip from school. So, Ben, listen up on this one. The <laughs> trick with drum brakes is to take both drums off but only change one side at a time so that then you have a totally accurate but mirrored point of reference on the other wheel. Cool. So you get a, a chance to look at all the way the springs are set up and everything. Don't tear everything apart at once because then you have no idea how it goes back together again. Ray, you have done your good deed that for the day. That is an outstanding suggestion. Yeah. I like that a lot because yeah. I've got four drum brakes to do pretty soon. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. On the project car. Ah, of yeah, course. So coming up pretty soon. Uh, and then last one on the brake pads here. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll move on. Uh, this one comes from Morgan. And this is a, uh, wow, this is a long email. Um, 11 years, a certified mechanic, um, current, or certified, fully certified for about seven years now. So. Congratulations. Um, Morgan knows what's going on here. I uh, he mentioned a couple of different things about this, and one was a common mistake that he sees from a do-it-yourself crowd often. And it's not something that particularly causes any damage, but um, it could. Um, a lot of time, times people will unknowingly spin the caliper 360 degrees mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. and twist the brake hose complete, completely into a loop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, you know, it still works, and it's not going to cause any, any problem with the operation of the thing unless you, unless you crimp that hose. Um, it does have the potential to break or rip the hose much greater than if it was hanging at the, the correct length. Yeah. So, uh, that was a good point to, to mention there. And he also mentions, uh, loose or missing bolts. Yeah, that's important as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of course. And, uh, then he also mentions, um, the, the, uh, the brake 
tool that we mentioned, uh, you know, the one that pushes the caliper back in. Yeah. Um, the, the piston on the caliper. He mentions that not everybody has a C-clamp laying around or the brake tool laying around. He said that when the pads are still on the, on the, uh, on the rotor and on the, on the caliper, mm-hmm. you're able to get a, uh, pretty, like he says, he mentions a, a meaty screwdriver in there and pry it back <laughs> into place. And he said that actually works. You can just pry it back and it, and it twists back on its own. So, uh, that's a nice tip. And that's so a seasoned. I, I think that's good. Yeah. And he said, well. he said, you know what? He said a lot of people should attempt to do this. Other people, you know, just <laughs> use your, use your, uh, you know, I guess your best judgment on this. You know, if you're not really all that mechanically capable, mm. maybe you shouldn't do it on your or own. Or at, at the very least, try to be as prepared. Exactly. As yeah. Um, all right. So Sam writes in and Sam says, uh, hey, Ben and Scott, could you do a podcast on why Americans do not have diesel cars? Here in the UK, uh, these account for half of all vehicle sales. Uh, you talk about an economical car doing 35 miles per gallon, exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the BMW 320D does just uh, under nine seconds to 60, but it gets 47 miles per not gallon. Not bad. Not bad at all, Scott. And a car doing over 50 miles per gallon is the norm. So I would be very – this is Sam talking. I would be very interested as to why there are still very few diesels in America when they are much more uh, – you know. You know, just off the top of my head, I think I remember hearing something about this, that our refineries here hmm. are set up for refining crude oil into gasoline, uh, whereas the um, – some of the European refineries are, are set up more for refining crude oil into diesel. So we may have our technology locked in. It's we a different, be. it's a different process. It takes, yeah. you know, crude oil from where we receive crude oil. It's refined into, you know, the different components. It, it you know, one barrel goes into several different things, gasoline, mm-hmm. diesel, um, kerosene, whatever it happens to be. It's all refined, but, um, I think ours is set up more specifically for gasoline than it is for diesel. That's a good answer. I, I believe, yeah, I, I think that's what I heard a long time ago. But um, we'll have to look into that. I know, I know there is a lack of diesel vehicles here in the states, though. That is true. Yeah, uh, it, they're still around, but not not as many. No, not no. nearly as many. So um, I got one here from Cynthia. Okay. Uh, Cynthia is a new listener. Uh, says she uh, normally listens to um, you know the history. Uh, stuff Mother Never Told You and mm. Stuff You Should Know podcasts. Uh, but this one caught her eye, so she thought she'd give it a listen. But oh, she, shucks. Uh, she says that she's that girl that when something goes wrong with her car, she picks up the phone and calls her dad. Uh, nothing, nothing wrong with and that. One, and one kind of ties in because she wants to hear a podcast on the 57 Chevy Bel Air, which is her dad's favorite classic car and thought uh, it would be neat to hear all the details. So um, you know what? I like that car as well, Cynthia. Yeah, so they're we'll, handsome cars. We will uh, we'll talk about that sometime soon. Um, I've got one from, uh, while, while we're still roughly around the subject of brakes, mm-hmm. uh, Chad writes to us from Kansas and, uh, he came across our podcast on shopping for new tires. Now mm-hmm. this, I haven't dated these, but some of these podcast or some of these listener mails, uh, emails that I have are pretty old. Um, okay. So he said, I was surprised you guys did not mention the tire ply in selection of tires. Tire uh-huh. ply is important if you're going to be doing any towing with your vehicle. Many people don't think about towing when they purchase new tires, but when it comes time to tow a U-Haul or a friend's boat, they just assume they can tow it with their truck or SUV. There's a lot more that goes into towing something than most people think about. Maybe you guys could do a podcast on towing or preparing to tow. Uh, you seem very interested in things that go fast. 
but you haven't talked about the things that get the fast things to the track. Very good. The trucks that get the fast things. To sure, track. understood. Pretty good point. You know what? I I got to say that I I think that if you have a uh, you know a tow hitch on your vehicle mm. and you're buying new tires, that's probably something that you do consider. Mm. Uh, maybe if you were buying tires for a vehicle that. Uh, you know, does not yet have a tow hitch, but could tow a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you wouldn't even have thought it twice about it when you bought your new tires. So, yeah. um, this might be something to think about for some of the bigger vehicles that mm-hmm. do have towing capability. And it go, it kind of goes back to, um, a point that we, we try to hit on in several earlier podcasts, which is when you are making a purchase, whether it's a, an entire vehicle or mm-hmm. pieces of, uh, or components of a vehicle, the most important part before you take your wallet out or before you take your card out or whatever you're paying with is to think about it from all angles. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got, we've got a pretty good podcast on whether or not, uh, you make as much, you save as much money as you might think you do buying a hybrid, yep. you know, and the answer is kind of surprising. Do the math. Do the math. Yep. yep. Or, or tune into our podcast. Now, speaking of uh, parts of vehicles, Ben, I got something yeah. to mention here about parts of vehicles. Tim from Signal Mountain, Tennessee, uh, hey, wrote in saying that, uh, uh, let's see, he said, I've been a uh, motorhead or gearhead since I got my first car in 1975, which was a 71 Vega. Cool. Um, several weeks ago, you had a podcast about the largest land vehicle, the Terex dump trucks. Oh, that thing's a monster. Yeah, huge, huge, huge. Well, he wants to know where, where and how those vehicles are assembled. Uh, because you can't drive them from the factory to the job site, obviously. Right. And the components are too large to ship by commercial truck or rail. Well, the components, if you break the, com- even some of the components have to be broken down. Like you can't ship the entire bed assembly. Right. The entire uh, in one piece. The entire- yeah, exactly. These things are assembled on site in a lot of cases. And I'm, I'm just, I'm winging this here because I know that they can't drive them on, on land. And I know I haven't ever seen these things being hauled. Not yeah. the size we're talking about. There's a middle range size that I have seen mm-hmm. and they call that a wide load and they're enormous. Uh, but they're not nearly as big as the mining, the full on mining trucks mm-hmm. that we talked about before. Uh, so on site, you know, the, you know, Tim, you're right that they're assembled on site. They're mm-hmm. welded. They're bolted. You know, whatever hap- has to happen, they're assembled on site and that's, uh, that's where they live. And then to kind of, Complete that thought. Yeah. Uh, Zach from Wisconsin wrote in and said that, um, his uncle works for, uh, the company. It's, it's, it's pronounced Bucyrus, which is B-U-C-Y-R-U-S, Bucyrus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they design the electrical components. And he said that the vehicles are designed to last the length of the operation of the mine. So if the mine is going to be open for 20 years, they're designed to last for 20 years. If it's ah, going to be open for 30 years, they're designed for 30 years or 10 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, now he also mentions Bucyrus was recently acquired by Caterpillar. Um, so just a combination of two companies that make giant trucks. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that they were – and then once that's over, I don't know if they're just disassembled or scrapped or what happens. But, you know, maybe the repurpose somehow. Yeah, maybe it's time for us to check eBay. Yeah, uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. We, we can, we can maybe get a, uh, we can get it shipped one piece at a time like yeah, the Johnny maybe. Cash song. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, – Cadillac. So Turi writes in and says, uh, hey, guys, just listen to the Chop Shop episode. Near the beginning, Ben has a little moment of wondering how stunt cars and movies work. Uh, that would make a great episode, no? And mm-hmm. he says, mm-hmm. I understand some car companies provide cars to filming companies as a kind of product placement thing. Uh, and wasn't there an incident where one of the filming cars in the most recent Bond movie was crashed while being driven to the location? Seems like a pretty fruitful topic, sister. Yeah, sure does. Sure does. I remember seeing a video of something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, crash in New York, I think it was. Is that right? Uh, City Street? Or yeah. is that something else? Maybe it was uh, a different movie. 
I, I don't I don't know. We'll we'll check in. We'll get <laughs> well, back to you, sir. Yeah, definitely. All right. Here's here's one from uh Barry. And Barry is uh doesn't say from where. Uh this is about the four twenty seven Cobra for uh podcast, rather. Um he says regarding the po- uh, Cobra podcast, years ago I remember hearing an old fact about this car, and I don't know if this is a fact or not, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh it says apparently more people died in this car before they made the first car payment than any other car model in history. I have no idea if this is true. Have you ever heard this, and do you think it's true? What do you think? Well, that's – okay. See, that sounds like one of those facts that's that's a little bit difficult to quantify because how many you, – you have to ask yourself, the, can we apply the same standards to vehicles like uh, Model A's or in the in the yeah. pioneering days true. of automobiles? True. I I think that it sounds like a very – a very fascinating fact. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure the there are ways to check it, but we'd have to do some digging. Yeah, maybe. exactly. You know, I heard something similar about um, you know when these uh, the newer bikes, like the bullet bikes, came around. Yeah, yeah. Um, I heard the same thing about the Ninja motorcycle. Um, that you know is just killing people left and right because mm. you know the, these inexperienced riders get on it or it's so new you know at the time the technology is so new the at, handling at the time it. it was so different from the road bikes that were yeah. out there um that uh you know it was, it was being sold to first-time bike buyers and uh there were there were even like some you know evening news expose type things where you know they'd send someone in saying that they have no experience on a bike when they they'd see which way the salesperson would lead them and it'd lead them right to these these top end high horsepower models Oh no! And uh, yeah, it was it was really a big deal I'm, for a long time. So I'm sure the title is something like "Merchants of Death," something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, at the time it wasn't quite as sensational, I guess, because it was yeah. you know, mid '80s or something. But, anyways, um, oh, got, you, know, you want to? Oh, here's a quick one from yeah. Ryan. You know, Ryan, uh, Ryan from Lynchburg, Virginia. Yeah, yeah, Ryan. Good to hear the, from you, uh, Ryan. Yeah, exactly. He hasn't written in a while, but he's still out there. Um, this is the one. You remember he had Hutch, the vehicle that was wrapped, and we did that kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we focused the mini <laughs> right. that was wrapped. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. He heard us mention the Bill Cosby bit on the uh, on the again on the four twenty seven two hundred mile per hour thing. Yeah. And he said that if you want to hear it, you can hear it on uh, in on multiple occasions. You can hear it <laughs> on um, XM Sirius Satellite Radio. Cool. So if you you're looking for that little bit of audio, you can find yeah. it there. So uh also Thanks, Ryan. thank you Ryan. Dan writes into us uh from London, Ontario. Uh and he's talking about uh he's he's talking about some uh Toyota stuff and uh he he talks about how Toyota's just-in-time manufacturing practice allegedly came from American grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Kichiro Toyota saw that the amount of a new stock of grocery order of a grocery ordered each day was dependent on how much stock they sold. So he applied that to manufacturing. Um, and then he has a podcast suggestion for us. Uh, SAE sponsors several student mega project competitions where university or college students from all across the world compete. Um, and Dan himself ran a team in the Baja SAE competition. Uh, they design, build, test, fix, and race a one-seater dune buggy. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, he's got a link to his team's website and, uh, you can check out all the other student competitions um, there at uh, students.sae.org. You know what? I saw an SAE race one time at the Pontiac Silverdome in the parking mm-hmm. lot. It looked like go-karts. Yeah. Extremely fast, really cool go-karts. And by the time I got home and came back, you know, I came back with my daughter trying to see this this race that was happening. It was just ending. Oh. Just missed it. They were packing up in the trailer and everything, but um looked really, really cool. So definitely look into that site. Hey, here's one from uh, – Let's see. This is from Ben Bolin. 
Yeah, Ben Bolin. Uh, world record jump attempt set for Indianapolis 500. You remember you sent me this? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, you yeah, looked yeah, a little yeah. bit puzzled there when I did, did that. Did you but see my uh, – Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is really cool. You sent me this and said we should cover this on Nuts and Bolts. And I said definitely. So, oh, you uh, got me. This, is, got a, me um, this is something that's going to be happening during the Indianapolis 500 uh, yes. this year. Kind of a, a side spectacle is what they're calling it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is about a, uh, a custom-built truck that's going to – uh, run on a track that's a, a life-size version of the Hot Wheels toy track that, you know, they, they used to set up in our living room. You know, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, this one just – where the truck will drop in on this extreme incline. There's no loop or anything like that, no. but there is a big jump. Huge, huge jump. jump. Huge jump, I should say. The, uh, the, the top of the tower where this thing drops in is 100 feet tall. So this thing is dropping in from a hundred, like um, you know, like a skateboarder that drops into the uh, mm. the, the ramp. It's mm. like that, or like a ski jump, it, or a ski jump. It looks like a ski jump, really. Uh, this thing is gonna th- this big truck. Um, is it a Toyota truck? I think it is. Um, it's going to it's a it's a Pro Two style truck, I should say. That's best way to describe it, I guess. Um, driven by a masked stunt driver. <laughs> who knows who that will be? I know you love that. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be, um, and I guess they're going to make this thing look like it's hung on a uh, giant bedroom door, make it look like a kid's room that this thing is, is, uh, oh, that's for. Cool. but it's going to get this. It's, it's the truck weighs 3,500 pounds. It's got an 850 horsepower engine. And, uh, let's see. The, the, the ramp is 45 degrees, so it's a steep, steep rolling. Mm. Um, it's gonna pull more than three G's of force on the way. And it is going to jump, it's gonna try to jump more than 300 feet. Good luck to you guys. 300 feet, that's a long, long way in a big truck like that. Yeah, for a lot of trucks. Exactly. So, you know, and the cool thing is there's kind of a, a teaser video online of this thing. Uh, so if you want to see the teaser video, which they show everything but the jump. They show it rolling down the ramp. They show it approaching mm-hmm. the ramp, mm-hmm. and then you don't get to see the actual jump being made. So you know they're practicing. You know they're getting everything just right. But um, if you're at the Indianapolis 500 this year, check it out. And tell us about it. Definitely. Uh, so we've got another uh, letter from Brian here. Um, Brian is – Say, says he enjoys our old episodes. Uh, he goes back and forth between, uh, different podcasts we have, uh, to work in, while he's working in, uh, going to work in his 2005 Honda Accord. In your Halo Car episode, you mentioned that the Dodge Viper and the Plymouth Prowler were made in the same plant. I grew up in the greater Detroit area, and though I now live in Kentucky, I've had most of my friends and family employed by the big three at one time or another. Um, so he said, while in college, a good friend of mine got his dad to pull a few strings and landed an engineering internship in the aforementioned plant. He worked for the summer on a team of process improvement and quality control engineers. One time I asked him uh, what he did all day, and he said the following. <clears throat> Mainly, we sit in a room that overlooks the line and do paperwork or talk until there's a problem on the line. And we all walk down to the floor to fix the problem. The problem is almost always the two parts don't fit together quite right. The solution is almost always to find a big wrench and beat the parts until they fit together. Nice solution for a $50,000 plus Come on. sports car. Really? That's what, that's what Brian's telling Seems us. Seems like the, I, you know, I've seen old videos of like the original mini being put together where, you know, they got a sledgehammer and they're smacking the inside fender wall trying to make something fit. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. I, I, I just thought it was a funny. I suppose there's story. some of it still happening. There must be. I mean, I, I take him at his word here, but, um, wow. I know. You think it'd be a little bit more refined at that point. You know? Can I, can I read one really short one? Sure. This is, the, I'm going to call this, uh, listener mail, the Ben Overdose. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, Ben and Mr. Benjamin. My name is Ben. That's how it starts. Oh, boy. Uh, uh, well, he, he just wants to know uh, a little more on the difference between a traditional manual five or six speed and the new flappy paddle or dual clutch transmissions. <laughs> flappy paddle. Flappy paddle. Right. Yeah. And so that's his uh, – and he's driven a, a manual for over five years now and he's wondering if the flappy paddle will bring the same satisfaction as a traditional manual uh, or if it's going to feel like he's driving an automatic. All right. All right. We'll, uh, we'll look into this because I've never driven a flappy paddle car. I have a I have a hard time saying it without laughing. It's yeah, like, it is it's like at IHOP how you can order some delicious stuff if yeah. you're willing to say the silly name. He's right, name. though. They call them paddles. Yeah, they, yeah he's right. The shift paddles, but not flappy paddles. What, what do you got? Okay, I got one. Uh, let's see from Kelly from Kansas City, Missouri. Um, says or you guys brought up the every. We may have done this already, Ben. Says you guys brought up the everyday driver car technology that's been derived from sports cars and racing. Sounds like a great uh, podcast to me. Uh, if you haven't covered it already. Um, please do so. So, and, and who I, is that? I, I feel like we have Kelly. Um, I think I think we've done. We this. did. We did innovations that came from racing. Yeah. It was, okay. It was a. It's an old older show. Though. Yeah, it's an older show. So Kelly, take a look for that. And we do have an article online that's uh, you know like ten, mm-hmm. um, ten features that came from racing or something like that. Everyday car features. Um, here's one from Paul from Barrie, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul says he just listened to the podcast on the Aston Martin Signet. And it says left, uh, let's see, left me thinking that Aston Martin is exactly, uh, isn't exactly the first one to do something like this. BMW has the mini line. Mercedes has the smart car. Mm -hmm. I think we mentioned those two. Yeah. Uh, yeah. the big difference is that Aston Martin has actually put their formal name on it instead of tagging it with a new product line, which is, uh, which is kind of bold for them. Yeah. Which is right. Which is right. Yeah. Uh, so that makes sense. And just thought I'd put it out there anyways. That's his theory. So thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. I get, I've got one from uh, okay. from Alex in Jersey. Uh, he says, on to the chop shops. Yes, I know of at least one and possibly a second. Uh, the one I'm familiar with, I used to sell parts to over in New Jersey. I won't give the town name, but Lex Luthor fired a nuclear missile at it in the original Superman <laughs> movie. Okay. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Yeah. Uh, I, I put in the hint, hint there. Sorry, Alex. Uh, and having worked there for many years, I can see why. Either way, he had a legitimate repair shop up front, but behind a door with a heavy piece of drywall screwed to it with no handle was a pair of garage bays and walls lined with shelves and car body parts. I discovered this when I dropped by one day to collect on some money he owed my store. And uh, being the only Spanish-speaking guy, they uh, sent me. The owner saw me wandering around near the door trying to get a better look at the contents of the room before barking at me not to go in there. It's against insurance regulations, mm-hmm. which is a pretty good excuse because, yeah, it's against the rules. I see that. So it's a uh, – this is the old secret room trick. Yeah, which, you know, we love a secret room. Oh, so sure. That's cool, Alex. Thanks yeah, for that. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, here's one from Harry. Mm-hmm. And Harry has a book suggestion for us uh, because he listened to the Ooh. Whiskey Cars podcast where we suggest, you know, we're asking for some good books. Yeah. Um, says this one may be old news, but I would highly recommend The Driver by Alex Roy. Mm-hmm. It covers Alex, Alex's experiences leading up to his breaking the cross-country driving record from New York to L.A. in 31 hours and four minutes in 2006. Wow. Had a hard time putting it down and read every free moment that I had for three days until it was finished. Ben, I took a look at the uh, the review of this book, yeah, uh, the driver, uh-huh. and it looks pretty darn interesting because the guy mentions how he has um, he has radar detectors that are tuned to the frequencies for every state that he'll be traveling through. He's got spotter cars along with him, wow, and he's got a spotter plane that travels with him. 
Are you serious? I'm serious because a plane, not a helicopter. A plane. You're oh. you're traveling. He's traveling at that type of speed, and wow. you're talking about driving from New York to LA in 31 hours and four minutes. That's incredible speed. That's nuts. Yeah, that's nuts. And it sounds really cool. I mean, this and the intro. I mean, just what I read. Yeah, was very gripping. It was kind of like a uh, a deathbed confession by his father that he was into this. Uh, into this, uh, the speed sport. You're hooked. Uh, you are. You're hooked. Wow. And, uh, it's really cool. Just take a look at it if you get a chance. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and give, uh, let's see. We've got an email from Kimberly, um, in defense of Amtrak. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, okay. now this was a well written and, uh, fairly lengthy email. So she's got, uh, six reasons out here. Um, number one, her boyfriend's af- afraid to fly. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, it's comfortable. Number two, while Amtrak on the whole is not profitable, there are parts of Amtrak that make profits. Number three, emergencies. You, that being you and I, Scott, both kind of touched on this but not really um, mentions the oil crisis. Five, car traffic. And she says, enough said. And there's the use of LOL again. Uh, six, economy of scale. Getting a 1,000 people on one trip into Boston on a train is much better for our resources than 600 cars as most people drive alone. Now, uh, and, and with each of these points, listeners, uh, she is expounding on them. Uh, she's not just listing them out. There, there are reasons for these. Uh, she said, I hate ranting, though I already have. I'll stop there. I hope this gave you some ideas. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to, to say thank you for that because it is true that there are, uh, situations where Amtrak is not only useful, but, uh, arguably crucial. So mm-hmm. we wanted to give a voice to, the uh, the other side, the Point nicer taken. side, yeah. Point taken. Point taken. All right, very good. I got a couple I'll just read through real quick here. Yeah, and yeah. at the end here, I've got one more that's a little longer. But um, stop me whenever you want, Ben, and, and break in. Um, here's one from uh, Allison from Orcas Island, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, electric farm tractors. I recently bought a car, a 1991 Mazda 323 hatchback, and started listening to our podcast because interest in the car. Um, what if you could do a podcast on turning a diesel tractor into an electric tractor? I'm a future farmer and think it could be an important issue. Diesel to electric. Diesel to electric. Nice. Okay, very cool. Uh, here's another one, real simple. Yeah. Uh, this one comes from Dave. Dave says, a podcast on the Acura NSX. Yes. You're a man of few words, Dave. The answer is yes. <laughs> I love the Acura NSX oh, as yeah. well, and uh, that's one I definitely want to uh-huh. do. Here's one from uh, Chris. Chris is mentioning the Sanders uh, in the uh, Locomotive podcast, uh-huh. and uh, you know what, Chris? This was this was a surprise to a lot of people about the Sanders on the uh, on the track, you know, for traction. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It seemed like a lot of listeners commented on that. But uh, yeah. one thing about the discussion is that um, back in the earliest days, the Sanders uh, used domes on top of the boiler. And the steam, uh, the sand was dropped on the rails by gravity. Later models would use the steam to shoot the sand more directly into the wheels. Okay. Um, and today's diesels also use air to shoot the sand onto the rails. So, um, I don't know. Some, I guess, interesting. interesting point there. And he also mentions the steam locomotives that were built in Roanoke, uh, Virginia in the night, in the 1950s by the Norfolk and Western Railroad Company. They could make up to 5,500 to 6,000 horsepower. That's a wow. steam engine. Not bad, huh? Wow. I know. It's incredible. So they could, it says steam locomotives can generally pull any train they can start, but diesels, however, can start trains that they cannot pull without burning up the traction motors. (laughs) 
So interesting. Huh? Interesting. Yeah, I've the got, differences in them. I got a quick one. I, I wanted to make a point. There was mm-hmm. one uh, one other person I saw also wrote in uh, regarding Amtrak. That is going to be Stan O. Mm-hmm. And Stan O made a point that that uh, made made me uh, laugh because. Uh, he heard this podcast just after he was riding Amtrak for a business trip from uh, Connecticut to Baltimore. And uh, he said he can't complain at all. Um, he especially mentions um, – and, and sorry, I'm, I'm not reading your whole uh, email out here, Stan. But he especially mentions uh, the hassle of getting to an airport, going through security, being at the gate um, versus pulling into a train parking lot. Um, says it was only a half hour more total for his travel time. Okay. Uh, and taking from the, his home to the hotel he was staying, he said Amtrak is clean and very comfortable, especially for a six foot four guy like me who appreciates leg room. <laughs> and that is true, my friend. You are going to be squished in coach. That's right. So, good point. All good right. Point. Good. Like to hear all this. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I don't, I think I'm going to have to save some of these because, uh, well, I'm, I'm, obviously, I've got stacks. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to maybe narrow it down to two or three more here, and then we're going to wrap it up. And oh, I've right. even got – we didn't even get to any of our personal stuff. Oh. I like to start our own questions or okay, do, any of that stuff. At least do project cars. Uh, maybe, maybe. Okay, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll, we'll see. see. All right, here's one that uh, I want to mention from Jordan, and I think I know the answer to this one from Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan wrote in and said, hi, Ben and Scott. Just curious about the uh, car care items like turtle wax, armor all, to name a few. Um, what were people using when the Model T came out? Says thanks for making my drive to work a tad less monotonous. Now, you may think that you know they didn't use anything, but I think that they did. I, I mean, this, this is purely guess on my part. Okay, I had a friend in high school that used kerosene to wax his vehicle to get the to get a shine. And you it? can't really call it waxing at that point; it's no. not really wax, but it's kerosene to clean and shine his vehicle. Okay, and it really did work. I mean, you'll have to you have to find out the way to do this safely. Yeah. But uh, he had a black truck, and I tell you, that thing was very, very shiny all the time. Um, and of course, it smelled like kerosene yeah, for right. a while not 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 long. But it didn't, re- you know, the smell didn't really stick around for very long. But um, I've found you know online links that say that you know people use these use this for uh, limousines and other vehicles that they want to appear extremely shiny, very deep gloss paint. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kerosene might have been the way that people shine their vehicle back then, or other petroleum-based products. Sure. Uh, because it has the same effect of removing, you know, mm. kind of the the grime and and dirt and stuff from you know road dirt. Yeah. Um, but learn how to do it first before you attempt it, because uh, that's important. You want to scrub your paint job based on something that I mentioned. Right. <laughs> please, please don't. We we uh, we. Uh, totally indemnify ourselves. Yeah, exactly. We're not giving you advice on that. Exactly. I'm going to – okay, i got two more here. I'm, they're both long. I'm going to narrow it down to this one. All right. This one Scott comes Benjamin, from uh, – Scott Benjamin, a decisive man, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this one comes from David from Wichita, Kansas. And, uh, you know, trust me on this one. It's a little longer but interesting, okay? Let's go for uh, it. This is about our Artificial Reefs podcast. Oh, yes. This? I remember this when email. We, uh, we talked about submersing, uh, mm. you know, ships and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it says, hey guys, I've been a listener for quite some time. Never thought of email until I heard this one about uh, saving the oceans one shipwreck at a time. I think that's what we called it, right? Um, he did his master's thesis on artificial reefs. And the two reefs that we looked at, which were the, um, uh, let's see, the bar, what is that, barink? B-A-R-I-N-C. I don't remember what that stands for now. I'll have to look at my notes. Um, and the USS Oriskany mm-hmm. are the two that, uh, the two that he studied. In addition, he loves cars and uh, tried to create an artificial reef himself. Okay, so here's where it gets interesting. Yes. 
Um, it says you hit the nail on the head. There's one. Oh, that that uh, that's the tire reef. Yeah, that's a tire reef. That's yeah. right. The B A R I N C. I forget that what it stands for again. Um, but it just doesn't build a good environment for sea life because the vulcanized rubber that the tires made from, um, when the uh, when the Ariscani was was cleaned up, scraped down everything, it had lots of hard surfaces for the coil to, coral to grab to. But um, you know, on the other other hand, the the tires were too flexible and soft. It just wasn't right, a good surface yeah. for them to, to grab onto, right? Um, okay. <laughs> here's the, here's the crazy thing. All right. So this and the salt water assist in the, uh, I'm sorry, it, you know, they begin to rust. Right. Okay. Right. All right. And this is something he experienced firsthand. Uh, and he says that, you know, the, the U.S. Oriskany, it continues to rust, but here's the problem is that it, the, the Gulf Stream keeps that, that area clear of all this rust and decay. Mm-hmm. What happens is that, um, that causes a lack of a lack of oxygen in the area that this artificial reef is created, right? But the Gulf Stream keeps it clear of all that you know, yeah. because there's fresh supply of water being brought in all the time. All right, so he, <laughs> all right, he tried to do this on his own in, in a pond that he had at home, um, right. using his own vehicle. He had an '85 Chevy S10, cleaned it up. You know, after this thing is gone, it had 250 thousand miles on it. He sanded the paint, removed the fuel, the heating system, the mm-hmm. cooling system, interior tires, all that stuff. Put it in his own private stock lake, you know, so they're fish living in the lake. Uh, the pond is just under an acre, and for the first three or four years, he had no problems at all. Then he noticed to start that the fish were dying off quicker than in the previous 10 years. Oh, man. So after a simple, simple water sample, he noticed a, a, lo- a noticeable low oxygen level in the, in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he thought of was that reef that he tried to build, build in the middle of this lake. This is how you can tell this guy really studies artificial reefs because he uses phrases like, uh, so I took a simple water sample. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. So he pulled it out and obviously it's rusted out and everything. And, but he said it was an innocent desire to create this reef, but, um, it led him to spending more than a month cleaning up this, uh, cleaning up this truck and, you know, trying to get, spend a couple thousand dollars to clean up the mistake in the lake. Wow. And, you know, of course the, the light, loss of life of the fish and everything, but lesson learned. I realized that, you know, you can't put something like that, that size into a, into a, a contained environment. You need a fresh mm. supply of water at all times. Otherwise the rust is going to, you know, just take all the oxygen out of the, the, the lake. Exactly. So, um, he wanted to point out that putting a rust bucket into an ecosystem may change the entire dynamic of the, the area and, uh, and kill the environment. And that's, you know, something that you don't want to happen. You're trying to benefit the environment right. versus destroying it. And that's yeah. what inadvertently happens. So he said, leave it to the professionals. Mm-hmm. And uh, then here's another cryptic message, Ben, at the end of this one. What's it say? T-T-Y-L. Talk to you later. And have a good one. T-T-Y, capital T, capital T, capital Y, capital L. I'm telling you, man, talk to you later. Crazy. That's what it means. Crazy. I don't. It's like his own language. His <laughs> own language. This guy's make, <laughs> making up his own language, this guy. Hey, so man. Thank, uh, no, really. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, David. Cause yeah, that that's was, uh, awesome. you'd never think of that. And we were saying, you know, maybe submerge something and it's good for the, good for the wildlife, but, uh, you have to do it in the right situation. Leave it to the experts. There are long-term consequences. Exactly. And you know what, Ben? I still got another. Oh, look at uh, us. We got sheets and sheets. Looks like I've got 30 more notes to read here. So we'll, we'll hold it off for another episode yeah. sometime soon. Okay. And, uh, I've got other things I want to mention too. Yeah, guys. Stuff I've seen. Yeah. Do you want to do one? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe one quick one? Yeah, do a quick one. Uh, how about this? Today I saw my first Fiat 500 on the road. Did you? Something we don't see ever here in Atlanta. No. Um, I, it had Michigan plates on it. Uh, it was gold colored uh, or kind of a copper color, I should say. Um, really stood out in traffic. I thought it was a pretty interesting looking vehicle. 
I, I, I just didn't expect to see one and it, and it appeared to, next to me in uh, traffic and it was gone in, you know, 20 seconds, but I got a good chance to look it over. Um, I don't know. Interesting looking car. Scott, speaking of gone, buddy, we got to get out of here. I can feel the producer's eyes boring into me. That was it. That was so fast. <laughs> okay. No, yeah, no, I agree. No, it's, uh, it's been going on a little too long. We'll have, uh, we'll have another full episode, I guess. Yeah, of, we'll have uh, to. Yeah. We'll have to do a part seven. So we hope you guys enjoyed this. We hope we got to your letter. If not, never fear. We are on the way with another episode. Uh, please let us know if you heard a topic here that you thought was particularly fascinating. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. Check out our website. And please send us new listener mail at carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.